for our last message, you're going to hear about the most amazing sermon ever preached. And no, it's definitely not the one I'm about to give. And we're not talking about a sermon from John MacArthur or John Piper or even a sermon from, from Charles Spurgeon. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount encompasses Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, just a little past the halfway mark, Jesus gives us a great example of biblical counseling in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 25 to 34. And so I thought it would be instructive and edifying as we wrap up this series to see how the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word himself, how he did biblical counseling, and how he counseled the anxious. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verses 25 to 34. And we have a simple outline for you this morning. We'll be looking at Jesus' example of biblical counseling and the cure for anxiety. We'll see, number one, the context. Number two, the command. Number three, the compassion. Number four, the counsel. And number five, the closing application. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 6 and verses 25 through 34. For this reason, this is Jesus talking. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how will he, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat, or what, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the chance for us to be here, to worship you, to fellowship with other believers alike, precious faith to lift our voices in the next hour to you in one accord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, we thank you so much that you are God who has initiated a relationship with us, that you did not leave us to our own devices, you did not leave us just to toil uh, on our own, but you reached out to us through your word and through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. You revealed yourself and that you left us here on this earth with your Holy Spirit and with the word of God, that we might know you and know what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, and how we might live our lives for your glory. And so we pray, God, this morning as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that you would help us to apply these truths for our lives, that it would change not just our behavior, but that it would change our heart posture. And so we pray that you would receive the glory for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Roman numeral one on your outline here, we're going to be talking about the context of the Sermon on the Mount and this particular passage. So up until chapter 5 in Matthew, and especially if you have a red-letter Bible, if you just flip through like the first few pages of Matthew, you can see that uh, Matthew has not relayed much of what Jesus has said so far. The first four chapters of Matthew is not a lot of red letters in there. It's thought that the Sermon on the Mount occurred uh, well into Jesus' public ministry, but the way Matthew presents his gospel account, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses given by the Lord. 
in Matthew's account, Jesus comes onto the scene with a comprehensive message about the kingdom of God that powerfully explains the meaning of the Old Testament law in a way that was revolutionary to the Jewish mind, emphasizing the gospel, turning the religious institution on its head by showing that the law is impossible to fulfill and that because our works are insufficient to save us, sinners must solely depend on God's grace for salvation. So Jesus came on and, and, and his Sermon on the Mount was, was radical to the Jewish mindset. Jesus said things like this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In that culture, in that day and time, it was thought that the scribes and the Pharisees were the highest, the pinnacle, if you will, of religious piety and religious purity. But Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. John MacArthur says this, the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the message and the work of the king are first and most importantly internal and not external, and spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. The Jews were all about fulfilling the law externally, but Jesus' message was that it was about the heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 is like that. You have heard, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is a fundamental principle of biblical counseling. The Christian life is not about behavior modification. It is about heart modification. We're not merely trying to exchange external behaviors. We apply the word of God and the gospel to change our hearts. Only then will true and everlasting change occur. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the hearts, by the spirit, not by the letter. If you've never placed your faith in Christ and made him the Lord of your life, if you're still living, trying to earn God's favor through your actions, trying to be a good person, hoping that will be enough to get you into heaven, you need to know that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. The only way to eternal life is through placing your faith in a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, trusting in him, that his work on the cross alone is sufficient to make atonement for our sins. Put your trust and your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ. Make him the Lord of your life today. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It is the message of Cornerstone Bible Church, and it is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. So again, Jesus' interpretation and application of the Old Testament law in the Sermon on the Mount, it was revolutionary. And it was an affront to people who thought they were religious, who thought they were righteous before God. Jesus indicted them in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. He said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Bible as a whole, and the heart of biblical counseling, 
are not about behavior modification. We are about heart modification. We see this in our parenting, don't we, those of us that are parents? When our kids are really young, maybe they're too young to understand, for example, there's a lot of um, behavior modification, right? We'll say, don't touch that. Eat your food. Don't throw that on the ground. Don't hit your sister, right? But as our kids get older and as they grow into their ability to understand, our parenting gets harder, doesn't it? We don't just address the behavior. We have to shepherd and address the things that are going on in their hearts that cause the behavior. Why did you touch that when I told you not to? Why did you throw that on the ground? Why did you hit your sister? So we have to be careful not to raise scribes and Pharisees in our houses whose behavior looks good on the outside, right? Whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but whose hearts are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Biblical counseling is the same as parenting. So this is the context of our passage. This is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to just make a quick word about the audience, the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look at the context of the verses right before the Sermon on the Mount, like at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 4 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 1, and also the verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29, it's apparent that both the disciples, and I would say the 12 disciples plus other disciples, and also the crowds were present. So that's the audience. So it's the disciples, the 12 disciples, other disciples of followers of Jesus, whether they were true or not, and also the crowds are present. One commentator said this, picture the scene this way, that the 12 formed a circle immediately around the Savior. Further down stood a, a large company of other disciples, and beyond these, the great multitude of other interested and inquisitive listeners. So that's the context of our passage this morning. Let's now look at the command, right? Roman numeral two, the command. And we'll see that the command is repeated in verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34. Three times in this passage, Jesus issues the command to not be anxious. Three times, but there are actually two different commands, as we'll see. So if you look at the ESV, the ESV consistently each time, three times, translates the word merimnate as anxious. Right? The ESV, if you read the ESV, it says, do not be anxious. Well, the NASB uses the word worry each time. So the ESV in verse 25, it says, do not be anxious about your life. The NES says, do not be worried about your life. Verse 31, the ESV says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? The NES says, do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat? Verse 34, the ESV says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And the NES, likewise, so do not worry about tomorrow. So Jesus says this command three times in this one little section. Our omniscient Lord knows the hearts of the people. He knows what weighs them down. He knows that they are worried. And so he issues the command to not be anxious. But like any good biblical counselor, as the wonderful counselor, he doesn't just stop at the command. He goes beyond that, of course, as we'll see, to change the hearts of his people. But first, let's focus on the command. The command in verse 25 is in the present imperative. But the commands in verses 31 and verse 34 are both in the aorist subjunctive imperative. So getting a little bit technical here, but I think there's a good reason for that, so bear with me for just a moment. So again, the command in verse 25 is in the present imperative, and the commands in verse 31 and 34 to not be anxious are in the aorist subjunctive imperative. And these are verb tenses in the Greek that are worth exploring for just a moment. The present imperative is a command to do something in the future and involves the continuous and repeated action. 
When it is a negative command and prohibits an action, it usually carries with it the implication of stopping an action which has been taking place. Okay, so the present imperative is a continuous repeated action. If it's a prohibition, then it means stop the action which has been taking place. So the command in verse 25, where Jesus says, do not be anxious, do not worry, it can be read as stop being worried or stop being anxious. And if you have the NAS, you might see a little footnote right there. That footnote usually says stop being anxious. So Jesus knows that they are worried and he commands them to stop. The commands in verse 34 and 35 are both in the aorist subjunctive imperative. It's a verb tense in the Greek. The aorist subjunctive used as an imperative usually forbids an action which is not in progress and thus commands that it not be started. So the commands in verse 34 and 31 and 34 by Jesus to do not be anxious, it can be taken or can be read as do not become anxious, do not become worried. Again, our Lord knows the human condition. He knows he is mindful that we are but dust and that we are prone to worry. So he says, as a preventative measure, do not become anxious, do not become worried. So again, three times that the command is issued, but two different commands. Verse 25, stop being anxious. And verses 34 and 35, do not become anxious. And there are other places in scripture where the command, we are commanded not to be anxious also, right? Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. This is in the present imperative. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That it would be a sermon unto itself if we wanted to kind of unfold all of that. But just to say that, that, that in Philippians chapter 4, that command is in the present imperative, so it's stop being anxious. In the parallel passage, in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, this is the parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount here. In Luke chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. That's the present imperative also. Stop being anxious. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, also, Jesus commands us to not be or not to become anxious in the face of persecution. And likewise, that is in the aorist subjunctive imperative. So that's, that's it for as technical as we're going to get into the, to the verb. But these commands are super important from a biblical counseling perspective. Recall that the world of secular psychology considers anxiety be to, to be a disease. So if you weren't here, I would refer you to session, chapter th uh, session number three that we did. We talked about the DSM criteria, and I'll just read it for you here. What the world says, or how the world diagnoses anxiety, DSM, chapter, uh, DSM four criteria for the definition or the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. Number one, chronic excessive anxiety and worry about a number of life events and activities lasting greater than six months. Number two, difficulty controlling the worry. Number three, Worries or anxieties associated with three or more of the following. Restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge. Becoming easily fatigued. Difficulty concentrating or mind going blank. Irritability, muscle tension, sleep disturbance. And that could be either early insomnia or restless sleep. Number four, worries or anxieties interfere with social or occupational functioning or cause the person clinically significant distress. And number five, Generalized anxiety disorder, according to the DSM-5 or 4, uh, is not due to the physiologic effects of a substance or general medical condition. So again, that's the world's perspective. I would refer you to session number three if you have more questions about that. So there are many who would say that anxiety and worry are not heart issues. That's what the world says. They would say that anxiety and worry are not sin issues. It's simply a disease or a condition. 
these same people might say, you know, my mother or my father was a worrier too. It runs in the family. And the implication of that statement is this. I'm not really responsible for my anxiety. I'm simply a victim of my genetics or my condition. This is the disease model of mental health issues, and that's what the world subscribes to currently. Secular psychologists or even some Christian integrationists might say, clearly you are suffering from a condition. You need medication and treatment therapy, just like any person with diabetes or an infection. But, as we've seen, the Bible commands us many times not to be worried. So even if anxiety does run in families, or if someday there is discovered a gene for anxiety, God would not give us a command that he also does not give us the grace to obey. God would not give us a command that he does not also give us the grace to obey. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So struggles like anxiety and depression are different than true diseases like diabetes or infection, which require medical treatment. The Bible doesn't command us not to have diabetes or infections. But Jesus does command us, verse 25, to stop being anxious. In verses 31 and 34, again, do not become anxious. But thankfully, Jesus is just not, he does not merely give us the command, but he addresses the heart and gives us the grace to obey the command. So let's look at the compassion. So we've looked at the context, we've looked at the command, now let's look at the compassion. To really help people, we must enter their world. To really help people, we must accurately interpret and explain the nature and causes of their problems to them. To really help people, we must provide authoritative, God-ordained, which means you know, biblical, solutions to their problems for them and give them hope. And Jesus did all of these things. This is obvious, but it's a good thing that I'm not Jesus. Right? If, I were in this, if it was me in this situation, I would have said something like this. You foolish, weak people, don't you know who I am? I'm the God who created you. I'm right here with you. How dare you be worried in my presence? It's an affront to my goodness and sovereignty that you would be anxious. I've come down from heaven to die for you. I'm going to take care of the biggest problem you'll ever have to face, your sin problem, and you have the gall to worry about your puny temporal life circumstances? Repent. You're not worthy. So those are examples of what not to say, right? Those are examples of how not to counsel someone, bad biblical counseling. Jesus could be confrontational and harsh when called for, right? We read some verses where he was confrontational and harsh to the scribes and Pharisees, but not here, right? We see his compassion. Though he commands them not to be anxious, he doesn't condemn the people for their anxiety. He also does not rebuke them for their anxiety or accuse them of living in sin. He's not shaking their fist at them, right? He doesn't even really call them to repentance, though he does chastise them a little bit for their lack of faith, which we'll see at the end of verse 30. But we see that Jesus, of course, is able to diagnose their problem accurately. Jesus correctly identifies the heart issue, which leads to their anxiety. And this heart issue was a lack of faith. At the end of verse 30, he says, Oh, you of little faith. And I imagine that Jesus is saying this with gentle compassion. He's not mocking them. He's not condemning them. He's not belittling them. He's diagnosing them. When I diagnose someone with cancer, I'm not mad at them. I don't ridicule them or shame them. I make sure to speak quietly, softly, gently, compassionately. 
I don't blame them for their situation. I say this, I'm sorry. It's not what we were hoping for. It's cancer. Scripture records a couple of other times when Jesus utters these words, you have little faith. And I wanted to kind of prove that this Jesus is not like condemning them for that. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 14 and verses 25 to 33. We'll see Jesus use these words again. Matthew chapter 14 and verses 25 to 33. Verse 25, and this is after the, uh, he feeds the 5,000. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and, began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. So this is just a quick examination about this passage. You know, impassionate, I'm sorry, impetuous, passionate Peter. He always wanted to be in on the action, but he always wanted to be with the Lord. Right? He's saying, Jesus is walking on the water. Sweet, I want to walk on the water with him. Verse 28, he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to the water. Jesus has come. So I imagine the situation like a young toddler, right? Uh, just humor me in this analogy, if you will. I, I imagine the situation like a young toddler taking his first steps towards his dad. The toddler, and maybe he starts out holding on to the couch, but he wants to get to where his dad is. And so he lets go of the couch, and he takes a few tentative steps towards his dad. And his dad is locked in on him, right? Jesus is locked in on Peter. He's not looking at the TV screen behind him. He's not looking at his cell phone. He's locked in on his son, on, on Peter in the situation, right? This is the analogy, right? His arms are outstretched. He's encouraging him. Come on, buddy, you can do it. Keep coming. Just one foot in front of the other. Keep coming. But then the toddler looks around. And he's never been this far away from the couch before, walking on his own. And he sees how far he has left to go to get to his dad. And he starts to wobble. And then he starts to cry. Daddy, help! Verse, Peter, Peter, verse 30, Peter says, Lord, save me! And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and took hold of him. So the toddler is starting to fall, right? He's starting to wobble, he's starting to cry. His dad swoops him to grab him. The text says immediately Jesus did this. And he takes hold of him, he picks him up, and he holds him tight, right? And he says, it's okay, my son. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I'm right here. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? It's an accurate diagnosis, but it's full of love and compassion. It's not like Jesus is an Olympic judge ready to deduct points for any error or bobble. He's not looking at Peter like, what, how, what's Peter's technique as he's walking on the water? Oh, I'm going to deduct some points from that. No. And he's not a grizzled coach or a manager looking for the weakest link to cut from the team. And we know this because Peter continued on as one of the main disciples, right? Jesus is not a harsh and demanding parent who says, well, let him sink and struggle a little more. Peter needs to deal with the consequences of his unbelief. Let him, let him swallow a little bit of water before I save him. No. Jesus is a gracious and compassionate, loving Savior who wants us to succeed, who wants us to have faith, who wants us to trust in him and to not be anxious. Another time when Jesus uses that phrase, O you of little faith, is in Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me there. Matthew chapter 8, 
and verse 23 through 27. This is just two chapters after the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records this event. Curiously, this, ha- this event happens on the sea as well. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. When he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Parallel passage in Mark chapter 4, verse 38, says this, But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and the disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This must have been a pretty intense storm. Remember that many of the disciples were seasoned fishermen, sailors, with years and years of experience. So for them to panic, it must have been a pretty intense storm. We see in verse 26, Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea, but he did not rebuke the disciples for the lack of faith. But again, he did diagnose the disciples' problem again. He said, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? The great irony in this passage is the disciples' statement recorded in Matthew chapter 8, verse 25. They say this, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Right? The disciples cried out to the Lord to save them from perishing in the storm. And of course, Jesus was going to save them, but not just from the storm. Jesus came to save their souls from perishing in hell. They're worried about their immediate circumstances, which we can relate with, and the problems that the storm presents. They can't see the big picture yet that Jesus came to save them from hell. The irony of Mark's account, Mark chapter 4, verse 38, when, when they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You guys see the great irony, right? Of course Jesus cared. That was the whole reason he came to earth and he was going to die for them. Jesus cared more than they knew. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. The disciples didn't yet know that the God who created them, the God who was sovereign over all creation, over the wind and the seas, was in the boat with them because he loved them and had compassion for them. Why are you afraid, oh you of little faith? I'm right here with you. We forget this too, do we not? When we are anxious or fearful, we've forgotten that the God who created us, the God who is sovereign over all of creation, he is in the proverbial boat with us. He has compassion for us, and he died for us because he loves us. Okay, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Back to the people Jesus is teaching, Matthew chapter 6. Their anxiety was not because of a rebellious attitude. It wasn't because of a lack of obedience, but it was a lack of faith. Verse 30, right? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus addressed their lack of faith by reminding them about God's care and concern for them. So the twofold application from Jesus' compassion, this is Roman Roman numeral three, the compassion. The twofold application from Jesus is this. Number one, Jesus had compassion for the people and we need to have the same compassion when we give people counsel, right? especially in the area of anxiety. Jesus had compassion for them, and we need to have compassion for them as well. The second application is that Jesus' compassion prevent, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus' compassion for us prevents us from being anxious, as we'll see. Again, Jesus' compassion for us prevents us from being anxious. So let's take a, take a look at the counsel that Jesus gives. Roman numeral four, the counsel. Do not be cut, I'm sorry, uh, Roman numeral four, the council. Do not be anxious because, letter A, B, and C. Letter A, 
do not, be, do not be anxious because God is our master. From verse 25. Matthew 6 and verse 25. The first word is either therefore or for this reason. The therefore or for this reason for verse 25 points back to the preceding verse in verse 24 and the discussion that you cannot have or you cannot serve two masters. Matthew chapter 5, verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 25, therefore, or for this reason, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. God is the master whom we serve, and he gave us life and body and will sustain them. He who has provided the greater, namely life and body, will he not also furnish the lesser, namely food, drink, and clothing? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Again, if God is our master and creator who gives us life and breath and all big things, and then, we can, then we can and should trust him to provide the little things like food and drink and clothing. After all, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? John MacArthur says this, Worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet it is a sin that Christians commit perhaps more frequently than any other. The English term worry comes from an old German word meaning to strangle or choke. That is exactly what worry does. It is a kind of mental and emotional strangulation, which probably causes more mental and physical afflictions than any other single cause. Do not be anxious or stop being anxious, present imperative, because God is our master. Letter B, do not be be anxious because B, God is our heavenly father and he cares for us. So letter A, God is our master. Letter B, God is our heavenly father and he cares for us. And we see this in verse uh, 26 and 32. Both times, Jesus refers to God as our Heavenly Father. Jesus could have referred to God in lots of different ways here. Right? He could have said, he could have, called, he could have called God by his covenant name, Yahweh. Right? Or he could have referred to God as Lord, Master, Almighty God, Sovereign God, any of those things. And yet here he says, he calls God your Heavenly Father. So let's focus on the word your for a second. It's a personal possessive pronoun. Say that three times fast. Possessional, uh, I can't even say it. Personal possessive pronoun, your. Heavenly Father. There is an intimacy there. An unbreakable bond, a familial relationship that is stronger even than a covenant. The love of our Heavenly Father is irrevocable, unconditional, and eternal. Room number one under this point, look at the birds. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is an argument of the lesser to the greater. If God provides even for these lower creatures, how much more will your heavenly Father care for you who was created in his very image? There is a rhetorical question. Are you not of more value than they? Of course you are. Of course you are. God is our heavenly Father, and he cares for us. Number two under this point, consider the lilies. Verse 28, consider the lilies. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This argument goes two ways, from the lesser to the greater and from the greater to the lesser. I'll show you. From the lesser to the greater, if God provides for the short-lived grass, he will surely provide for his children who are destined for eternal glory. 
and from the greater to the lesser. If God decks the wild flowers with such very beautiful garments, then he will certainly clothe his children with the ordinary garments which they need. Do not be anxious, because God is our master, God is our heavenly father, and he cares for us. Let us see, finally, do not be anxious, because God knows what we need. Do not be anxious, because God knows what we need. Verse 32, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus, again, invoking our relationship to your heavenly Father. And the phrase, these things, refers to our physical needs, our temporal circumstances. Don't become anxious, because your heavenly Father knows what you need. Verse 8, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 says this, your, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. Don't be like the Gentiles who are focused only on worldly matters and not on spiritual matters. They do not have because they do not ask. They ask and do not receive because they ask wrongly to spend it on their passions and pleasures. Pleasures, excuse me, James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. But your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. And still later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 7 through 11, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be, given to you. It will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Don't become anxious, because God knows what we need. So, Jesus' example of biblical counseling, the cure for anxiety, remember the compassion of Jesus. He has compassion for us, and he died for us because he loves us. Do not be anxious, because God is our master. God is our heavenly father, and he cares for us. And because our heavenly father knows what we need. Finally, it wouldn't be good biblical counseling if there wasn't some homework. And this is the biblical principle of putting off and putting on. Roman numeral 5, the closing application, verses 33 to 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The closing application. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, tells the people not to be anxious, not to become anxious. But of course, he's not just about behavior modification. He's about heart modification. He shows them the eternal and everlasting compassion that only he can give and gives them biblical reasons not to be anxious, reminding them of God's love and care for them. He's not harsh with them. He doesn't condemn them. He's not even really rebuking them. He's saying, don't become anxious. God loves you. And finally, he gives them the exhortation. He says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about your physical needs and your temporal circumstances, but focus instead your attention and hopes on the things of the Lord, and he will take care of all your needs. The verb seek, from verse 33, it means to be absorbed in the search for, a persevering and a strenuous effort. It is in the present imperative again, and so it could be rendered as keep seeking, or be constantly seeking first the kingdom of God. One commentator says this about seeking first the kingdom of God, it says this, to acknowledge God as king in your own heart and life, and to do everything in your power to have him recognized as king also in the hearts and lives of others in every sphere. Another commentator, instead of longing after the things of the world, we are to hunger and thirst for the things of the world to come, which are characterized above all else by God's perfect righteousness 
and holiness. To seek God's kingdom is to seek to win people into that kingdom, that they might be saved and God might be glorified. It is to have our Heavenly Father's own truth, love, and righteousness manifest in our lives and to have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, when we seek first God's kingdom, we take our eyes and our attention off of ourselves and our, and our perceived needs, and instead, we focus our attention and energy instead on living for the glory of God. God promises his grace for all that we need and for every day. But he only gives us his grace one day at a time. He doesn't give us tomorrow's grace today. He just gives us grace for today. I'm going to close with these last two verses. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have in your word recorded so much truth, so much wisdom, so much of your words for us to understand, to comprehend, to meditate on, to bathe in, to immerse ourselves in. And God, we thank you this morning that we can immerse ourselves in the truth of your love for us, the love and compassion that Jesus Christ had for his people. God, we know that you are mindful that we are but dust. We know that you are mindful of the fact that we struggle with anxiety. It's easy for us to become anxious, to worry about tomorrow, to worry about the things that will happen in the future. But God, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of your love for us, that you are God who loves us with a great love, with an everlasting love, that you care for us more than the lilies of the field, more than the birds of the air, and that you promise to provide for us. We thank you, God, that we can seek first your kingdom and that you will add all of these things to us when we seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to live our lives according to these truths, that we might internalize these truths, that we might remind ourselves of these truths, that we might preach the gospel of our, to ourselves every day so that we'll be reminded of these things so that we would not become anxious. Help us to live our lives for your glory, God, and to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.